Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and you found the Christian channel that loves atheists. And today we're going to be responding to a video from Mind Shift, who is a super nice guy from everything that I can tell, really likable, um, smart guy, and has uh, a channel that has just kind of exploded over the past several months. Um, and he's an atheist or agnostic content creator. And I'm going to uh, respond to his deconversion story here. I should say as I begin that uh, MindShift, Mr. Shift, I don't know what I should call him, uh, actually did make a response to my 10 questions for atheists. I wanna say how much I appreciated his doing that and doing it with a charitable and friendly attitude. And so today I hope that I'll do the same in response. Now, I want to say as we begin this that uh, Mr. Shift's testimony is pretty powerful and interesting, and he has a, a, a deeply um, Christian-influenced uh, origin story, and so you need to check that out. He tells it so well, and it's very clear that the things that have happened in his life that have brought him to the place where he is now have been meaningful and have been serious and and are personal. And that's something we should remember when we address a response like this, is we want to respond to the issues, to the topics, but, but the person that we're reacting to is a real person, and this is a real story, and I want to be respectful of that as we move forward. But I encourage you to check out uh, his story, and and you'll kind of see how he began to experience some questions that led to perhaps uh, some doubts that that began to grow a little bit. And this was not, he makes it clear, he was not a young man who was not knowledgeable about what the Bible had to say. He wants you to know, uh, and not for braggadocious reasons, I don't think, I didn't take it that way, but just so you know kind of where he's coming from, that he won Bible memorization contests. And I think he was raised on the mission field and was very churched and very committed as far as all that goes. And so I just want to make it all very clear that he has that background. And I want to say, though, here at the beginning, one of the attitudes that he expresses that Christians have, um, that some Christians have, I think you would say, uh, but he did speak about it as though it was kind of a commonality, something you begin to experience when you're in the Christian world. Uh, if, I'm, if that's wrong, I'm sorry, I'm capturing that wrong, I, I apologize. But I think he's trying to express that when, when you come up against issues like he mentioned slavery in the Old Testament, genocide, um, things like that, issues that seem uh, that are some of the common Old Testament type issues to come up. Not that his concerns were just to the Old Testament, but uh, he said he, he had this kind of a thought. And this is kind of what I think he takes Christians to do in situations like this. He says, like, OK, someone has an answer for it. Someone smarter than me has thought about this. They're still a believer. It's fine. And you just move on. And I did that for decades. Okay, now I, I do think that that happens, uh, and it happens with Christians. On the other hand, I just think this is something that tends to be true about certain kinds of people just in general. We can't research everything. We can't study everything out. And so there are going to be places where we end up uh, kind of saying about a particular thing, yeah, you know what, I don't completely understand that, but there are people that are smarter than me that have that figured out. Um, I was talking with a colleague just a little while ago who said, yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of how I feel about electricity. I mean, it, it, do we really, un I mean, it's hard to understand everything to do with electricity. Most people don't have all of the uh, physics of all of that worked out, but they have people smarter than me have that figured out or with quantum mechanics. But it's also something that cannot just happen 
in a lot of different domains. It can happen in this domain and it can happen with atheists and agnostics as well. I have certainly seen this uh, spirit indicated with demands that such and such atheist philosopher or, or YouTuber would completely destroy you or destroy that argument or, oh yeah, tell it to Graham Oppie or something like that. And what, what these kind of comments represent are not responses in themselves, but they're pointing you toward someone that they take to be either smarter, more knowledgeable, or more capable in defending these things and uh, offloading the problem of responding to the issue you just raised to other people who would no doubt surely annihilate you on this issue. Now, people on both sides of this issue of the of the religion debate, the Christian atheist discussion, have those kind of interactions. They have those kind of responses. And I think what that means is this exists on both sides, this idea that, yeah, I don't really know how to respond to some of this stuff, but there's someone uh, smarter than me out there. And then secondly, what I think most Christians do, and, and uh, maybe not, maybe this is unique to me, but I don't think so, is that whenever there is some issue that we don't really know quite how to square that or something, and we know that there's, there's a large uh, amount of work that would have to go into studying what people have said about that, we might put that on the shelf. If we have time, we might study it. If it's, if it's something that is urgent for us in terms of our uh, ministry or something, or we think it's really important uh, to know, or we're that curious or whatever, uh, we might do it then, but we might put it on the shelf and say, yeah, I don't really know exactly how to feel about that. Um, but I'm going to continue as I move through life to think about that, to study it further. Now, before we go into this next clip, I want to, I want to, mention something that I see happening in this video, and that is there seems to be a dichotomy, and, and he kind of caveats this at the beginning of the video, uh, that some people might say something like this. So I, so I understand that he knows this, I think, if he's referring to what I'm thinking, but he speaks as though there's like two kinds of ways of being a Christian in this respect. You can either be the hyper-literalist fundamentalist, the horrible literalist, I think, uh, that he, as he uses that term at some point. Or on the other hand, you could be watered down. Now, at some point, he does say that there is this uh, hyper-literalist, 100% absolute literal. Those are terms that he used, 100% literal. And, th and then there's like normal Christianity, or the normal Christian, as he refers to it. And then he talks about a watered-down version of Christianity. And I don't know if he means that the normal Christian is like, in the middle between those two positions uh, that you've got the normal and then the watered down or if the watered down position is what he takes to be the normal position because as he speaks it really does seem like we're treating the hyper wooden literalist position on one hand the, what he calls the fundamentalist position on one hand and then on the other hand we have something more like progressive Christianity which in one place he describes uh, this this watered down version as trying to fit your morals with, uh, I think, the modern culture or something to that effect. And uh, I don't see myself represented on either side of that. There are certainly many places where my morality doesn't match the secular culture of the West. And uh, at the same time, it's also not true that I take a 100% literal or what you might refer to as a, a very fundamentalist understanding of the faith. I, I think that I and most certainly most evangelicals, many Christians, are probably somewhere in the middle between that, because we understand, we do think that there are uh, genre issues and it's not 100% literal all the time. And hey, I, I don't want to come across, I know that he knows some of these things. I'm just reacting to what's in the video. And in the video, this issue of literal came up quite a bit. For example, every literal word, literal 100% literal interpretation of scripture. And so then it became a quest for how can I make a non-literal interpretation of the Bible, horrible, super literal interpretation of scripture. And this is like a great story. But if you're believing it for your literal truth, it's ridiculous. 
Okay, so I obviously those have context, and I encourage you to watch the video. It's linked below. So I, I think I've clipped out where he talks about this this literal side over here, which I think represents what he was raised in, and then you have over here this more watered down side, and uh, and and it would be more closer to what I would refer to as progressive Christianity or something, at least the way he describes it at certain points. And so I want that to be to be mentioned. I think he understands that there's really a spectrum in, in this discussion and and that a lot of Christians are going to be somewhere in the middle. But just wanted to say that as we go forward, because on the basis of this video, uh, I thought that needed to be I thought that needed to be said. And right, it's funny, but it's harmful because it led to so many other things. I will go on record saying that because of my belief, I was homophobic and not like I hated gay people, but I thought they were living in sin. We went from as a community hating gays to uh, let's hate the sin, but love the sinner. You can't do that. You can't treat people well when you hate their behavior. That's where indoctrination, that's where Christianity is harmful. And I know that that's even still extreme. I'm going to do a whole video on why religion is harmful in general. Okay, so biblical sexuality, this comes up in a lot of deconversion stories, obviously, and it, 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 it's not a surprise that uh, it does because this is one of the places where evangelical Christianity or what we might term conservative Christianity, um, uh, e even the versions that are not the hyper-literal fundamentalist camps that I think he's been talking about. Uh, this is where we're going to clash with culture on some of these things. And I, I understand that that's, that's going to be the case. But I do want to say this as we begin talking about this section, that to be fair, he's sharing his own journey. And this is not set up to be some formal takedown of Christianity in some, you know, like you would do in an opening uh, debate or something. I want to give that break here, understanding that we shouldn't expect syllogisms or anything like that. What he's doing here is he's giving his deconversion story in a somewhat casual way, just as Christians might give their testimony to coming to Christ in a somewhat casual way. And that's kind of the point is you want broadly for people to kind of hear your heart on that and not necessarily get bogged down at every point with uh, arguments and evidences and ways of thinking about things and all of that sort of thing. Uh, so I want to be fair that that is what's uh, going on here, but it does need to be pointed out that he he doesn't present anything here that demonstrates that God doesn't exist. He and and he says uh, somewhere in the video that it, you know it could be the case that uh, actually there is some God. It's just he's very very confident. I think I've heard him say in the 90 percentile that the, that the Christian God or Yahweh does not exist. OK, so uh, but but it does need to be pointed out here that nothing he says speaks to God's existence directly and nothing he says here actually speaks to whether Christianity is true. Um, what it would speak to is biblical inerrancy or because uh, it wouldn't show that God that God didn't raise Jesus from the dead. Didn't show that God doesn't exist. Doesn't show that God raised, didn't raise Jesus from the dead. Doesn't even show that scripture can't be trusted or is authoritative. Doesn't even show that what's Scripture says on this issue is wrong or that it doesn't represent the thinking of a creator God and what he wanted in the scripture. It doesn't say it doesn't show any of those things. And I just want that to be said up front. It is something that's out of step with culture. Uh, biblical sexuality is. I understand that. But there's nothing here that shows that Christianity is false. Now, the second thing here is this idea that you can't treat people well if, if you uh, hate some aspect of their behavior. I just think that seems patently false, Mr. Shift. I, I th and I hope you understand that. We, I hope 
I, you feel that there's a friendly vibe you're going, but I just don't see that to be the case at all. I, I'm pretty sure that you probably hate the way that conservative Christians vote much of the time, or if not, uh, hate the way that we think about certain things or uh, uh, hate the way we indoctrinate, to use the terminology that's been used, our kids with this sort of thing. You probably hate certain things about evangelical Christians. Probably some evangelical Christians that you know. You hate some things about them, their behaviors, ways that they behave uh, that are important to, to how they conceive of the world. But you still uh, you, you still treat them well, right? I wouldn't expect you don't treat them well. In fact, you might even like them, might even be fond of them. And yet you you find yourself in a place where you hate some aspect of the behavior. That, I, I just don't know why I should accept that you can't treat people well if you uh, hate some particular aspect uh, of their behavior. I, I just don't see that. And so I, I want you to see too that, yes, uh, Christians and this idea, this, this love your enemy or um, lo love the sinner, hate the sin. That is not something you said, we used to have this and then we, we used to hate and then we turned to this. Well, not in my lifetime, not in Mindshift's lifetime. Uh, that idea, that notion, that statement, in fact, has been derived from the words of Gandhi, from Augustine, and even from Scripture itself. And it is just the notion that we don't, we, we don't, we don't love everything that a person does in loving them. And there are going to be things about me, I would imagine, or your family or, or friends that you have who are Christians that you would disagree with, that you would hate that they behave in a particular way, but yet you still find yourself um, uh, treating them well. I, I just think that, that that is true about the world. Let's keep trucking. And the people that follow it, I would say, more vigorously end up worse. And so this watered-down version of Christianity that everyone is, not everyone, that many people are on now and that I found myself getting into as a reprieve and relief from my fundamentalist side was almost more sickening to me because it wasn't taking the Bible for what it was. It wasn't taking God for who he said he was. God says, I am vengeance. God said, my ultimate definition is I am jealous. We continue to say God is love. And yes, God makes many claims of himself, but to just so easily latch on to the ones that meet our current moral understanding of the world and our current scientific explanation of the world, which is not who God reported himself to be for the longest time or what the Bible shows itself as, is dishonest. And I think that I knew that. I think that the second I left fundamentalism, there was no escaping atheism agnosticism. Okay, so hitting on that last point first, uh, this doesn't make a lot of sense to me, Mind Shift. Um, I hear atheists say this quite often, that when I left fundamentalism, it was just going to be the case that I was going to end up being an atheist or an agnostic or something like that. But why? Like nothing that has been said about the truth of Christianity. I mean, I, obviously, I would argue with you that it, that it troubles the truth, that it shows a problem for the truth of Christianity. But even uh, even if I granted you everything that you're saying and said, OK, yeah, so that that's all true. You're right. Then what it would show is that perhaps the Christian God doesn't exist or perhaps the, the doctrine of inerrancy isn't correct or something like that. But if I gave you everything I think that you're that you're stating here as as true and you're right about all of that mind shift then where we would find ourselves is still there are a number of religions out there that may or may not be true. And I don't know how you jump all the way from uh, uh, Christianity to atheism and agnosticism. I see why you dropped the Christianity if I granted everything that you're saying here um, and maybe some other things that you've said elsewhere. Now, I think that the way that MindShift would respond to this is to say, well, because I'm, I don't think you, Braxton, spend all this time studying out all of the uh, apologetics that might come from other religions. Well, of the, uh, of the religions that do 
purport themselves to provide evidence, I do feel that I've taken the time to look into the evidence that's there. Now, I'll grant you that not every Christian is going to do that. But I, I also think that MindShift would say something like, I'm my what I see as my role is to respond to people. I've tried to understand his his thinking on this. I see myself as responding to people who are uh, close to deconverting or in the deconversion process. I think I've heard him say that. And so he might say, and and from my background, the background that I have some history with. So I'm not coming at this uh, from a, a Muslim position or a Hindu position. I'm coming from a Christian position, and as a result of that, I'm going to be reacting to Christianity. And when I walked away from Christianity which was the one that I thought had the, the, the chance of being true. It was what I was raised in. Why well, I, I just became disenchanted with, with all of it and don't see the need to do that. But I think if you're going to land on atheism and agnosticism, I, 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 I would like to know how one got there. Now, as for this idea that there are multiple ways, multiple temperaments or attitudes ascribed to God and ways that he is. And of course, we're supposed to understand that God is love and there maybe there's some conflict there and we kind of gla- grab onto the one that we like in the moment because it matches our cultural morality in the West or something. But again, this is where I, I just have to believe that he's um, talking about someone else other than than my understanding of Christianity because, again, I, I am at odds with the secular culture of the West on a number of issues. And at the same time, I don't take myself to be a hyper-fundamentalist literalist on 100% of things like the other position has been uh, discussed. And so uh, so I, I, I don't find myself in those positions. But the reason we see multiple terms described to God or uh, temperaments described to God is because God is not one-dimensional. He's personal, and we should expect that, like a person, we should uh, see different aspects of his personality coming out to the surface at different points. I mean, what if I showed you a guy and I said, this is Bill, and Bill is an incredibly loving and caring guy. And then you saw Bill disciplining his child, taking away a toy that his child really wanted. His child is crying, and maybe Bill is speaking particularly sternly to his child. You say, well, hold on, I thought that Bill was this loving, caring guy. Well, he is a loving, caring guy. It's just that he's multidimensional. He's not one-dimensional. And if we watch any person over a period of time, we should see different things begin to come up to the surface. And 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 uh, be, we should see Bill reacting in a number of ways and displaying a number of different temperaments or attitudes or emotions. But uh, it would still be true that Bill is a caring and loving guy. That's just what it means for God to be, I think, not one-dimensional like that. But for us, it was a big deal, the salvation issue. And the reason I bring it up is because it led me to two thoughts that really started to haunt and lead down the road of of deconversion. And it was that I came to realize in my thinking about this, because I debated very hard. No, it's believe and be saved. It is a free gift. I have to do nothing. And then I thought, well, I don't have to do nothing. I have to believe. But believing seemed like a thought and a thought didn't seem like an action. So, you know, that was the rationale. But then I thought, no, I still have to believe. It's not a free gift. I'm not born and saved. I'm born and damned. And then I have to be saved through what? Through faith or belief. So then belief is an action. I have to choose to believe. And I know this gets into semantics, but it was really important for me. It was two things. A, I have to even know about Jesus and the gift being offered. And then B, I do have to receive it. Even if receiving it is through faith, I have to have faith in it. I I do have to do something. Thinking something is doing something. These are two criteria that make it not an actual free gift. And it led me to the thoughts of, specifically at the time, I remember thinking about the Native Americans. They didn't have the opportunity for step one to even know. And so I looked into it. And of course, there is a wonderful apologist argument here for general revelation that you can 
squeeze out of the Bible like a tooth of toothpaste. But there's nothing in there that says that. And I think at some point, most Christians have to come to the fact that there is some predestination involved from God and some fate there about who will be saved and who won't simply because of where they were born and where they're not. And then that didn't jive with me with justice. And I never got a good answer for that. There's still not a good answer for it. The Bible is very clear. The only way through salvation is through the name of Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have salvation. You're not, you know, I, I got so many bad answers and they're like the best answers out there. Well, God is found in his creation. And when you marvel at the creation of God, you're marveling at the creator and you're, you're recognizing him. And in that recognition, it's an admittance of it. No, what? It's bullshit. It's insane to me the levels that we have gone to justify what is the cruelty of a God like that. Now, mind shift, you said here that you got all of these bad answers and they're the best answers, but the answer that you repeatedly mentioned was the answer from general revelation that perhaps God uh, uh, looks upon someone as uh, exercising faith with respect to the light that they've been given. And you kind of scoffed at this. There actually are a number of other ways that Christians have thought about this. Now, if it is the very fact that we're not 100% clear about how this works exactly, um, if if that alone counts against Christianity in some way, why well, that seems very strange to me because I, I, I want to say that um, uh, Christians don't claim to to know everything there is to know about God. And we, this would be the same with any particular field of study. We don't, there's a lot of things we don't know everything that there is to know about. And, uh, when, and so we have different hypotheses about how it might work. We would expect that to be the case uh, in, uh, if God exists and if Christianity is true, that there would still be some things that we would have to grapple with and not understand. I mean, again, let's think about quantum physics, for example. We have different ways, hypothesis about what's going on and why it's going on the way it does in some cases related to quantum mechanics. And nobody says, well, since there's these different ways, uh, you know, it's not every, not anyone knows 100% exactly in every circumstance or, or the right way of thinking about this particular thing, then that means that uh, we can't trust anything related to quantum physics or it's not worth our time or it's not real or something. We wouldn't say any of that. And I know you're not hanging all of that on this. You're just asking the question or showing us what you thought about as you went through this. But um, the, the truth is that we don't know. But but actually, I think that there's still a lot more we can say. Yes, there are different ways people have thought about this. One way is to look at the biblical example in Corne in Acts chapter 10 of Cornelius, who was a man who responded positively to the light that had been given as God sends Peter to go and evangelize him. So that is one answer. Another answer is the Molinist answer that Dr. Craig might give, that God uh, actualized a world in which the people that, uh, that would reject are the ones that don't hear or something like that, people that have trans world depravity. That's not my answer. I'm just giving you a spread. One answer is that at the moment of, of death or just after death, that there is an opportunity for salvation. Many, uh, many evangelical universalists, and you don't have to be an evangelical universalist to affirm this view, but many evangelical universalists will point at this and say, uh, yeah, what is it about death? Uh, the Bible does say it's pointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment, but what is it about death that suddenly after that death, suddenly one can't be saved? Now, I, I don't affirm post-mortem salvation. I'm just saying there is a spread of options here, and the spread of options itself does not discredit the view. It just says we don't know everything there is to know about this issue. And so, uh, but I think back to the issue that the, the one issue that you that you mentioned, Romans chapter one and verse 20 does say the invisible things of God, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen through what has been made so that they and the, they there are idolaters who worshiped idols 
are without excuse. Are without excuse for what? For not worshiping one creator God who made everything. So that is right there in Scripture. And it's also true in Scripture that in the Old Testament, the, the saints exercised faith, and we find that out in Hebrews. And they didn't, and, and these, the, I believe they were saved on the basis of, of the resurrection of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And yet they didn't, they didn't know this story in the way that New Testament authors would reveal it in its specificity. And so I, I think that, uh, that we have good reason to believe that, that these people respond to the light that they've been given. And, uh, per, and this was the position of Billy Graham. This was the position of, of William Lane Craig, as far as I understand it. This is the, that this is a strong possibility. This is the position uh, of my own father. And, and yet there are going to be Christians who have a problem with that. But these are things that need to be mentioned and need to be outlined. But I do think that there is something uh, missed about what the gospel is here. Uh, I've heard in one of Mind Shift's videos, I'm speaking to you as though you're hearing this. I don't know if you are. But in one of your videos, I heard you say something about, uh, that, look, it's, it's about salvation. You're being saved from something and you're being saved from hell. And so it's all in one sense. I don't know if you said this, but it, the salvation is all about hell. Here's the thing. The gospel is not just about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And salvation is not just about not facing the judgment that God has for us, this Gehenna, this hell. Salvation is to a kingdom. And that kingdom can be served in. And, and th there's good news that this kingdom has come and that this king has set up a kingdom. When we go to uh, on the mission field to reach some unknown group that has never heard the gospel, it is not just so that they don't go to hell. It's so that they will also be able to take part in the kingdom. That is an important thing. It, and, it, and it perhaps is the fault of 20th century evangelical preaching that that is an important part of this issue, but it's not the whole story. And the truth is we have now created uh, generations of, of uh, Christians and people walking away from Christianity who think that's all the kingdom is about, is about getting saved, not going to hell. No, we want to reach those people in unreached places so that they can serve in the kingdom because that's also what it's all about. And so we need to mention all of those kinds of things. But I... And so hell became a, a big one. And there's a ton of apologetics on hell being more of a metaphor and hell is just separation from God. And we're actually living that now and all of these other ways that you don't have someone burning eternally forever. And even the lightest version of hell is still the worst thing imaginable. And it's something that I don't think any just God would do, especially for people that never had a chance to know. And I don't believe in any form of general revelation. And it just right there was enough. Well, I hope that um, you would come to believe there's some good reason to think about general revelation that way, although maybe you don't. Maybe your mileage varies on that. Um, but when it comes to the nature of hell, this uh, video assumes the um, what is known as the a particular understanding of the traditional notion of hell, which is eternal conscious torment in literal fire and flames and that sort of thing. And that this goes on in a conscious state without end forever and ever and ever and ever and longer than that. Now, I did look at some other material from MindShift to try and see if he's treated uh, the position of annihilationism, for example. I've spoken three times at the Rethinking Hell Conference, uh, which is a group of conditional uh, immortality advocates. Uh, they, they affirm annihilation. And I didn't hear that. Uh, that wasn't treated in this video. And yet there are a number of people in exactly, I think, the demographic that MindShift is going to be brushing up against quite a bit. 
are going to be people in a group for whom the annihilationist perspective, the conditional immortality perspective is growing very rapidly. And in fact, it, it should be noted that when we're talking about hell in the sense that Christians really mean it, which is, uh, you know, that there are four terms or there are four words in the New Testament that are translated to hell in some translations. And that's unfortunate because there are four completely different words. There is um, there is Sheol, there is Hades, and perhaps in Luke 16, the rich man of Lazarus, the intermediate state, we might call it. You're not cast body and soul into some sort of judgment, but your body's out here in the grave. So whatever that is, it's not the same thing. And so you have uh, so you have Sheol, Hades, Tartarus, and then Gehenna. Gehenna um, is the only one that seems to be referring to after the judgment hell, like what we mean when we usually say hell. And when you bring up the the New Testament data on uh, that could even possibly be referring either by the use of the term Gehenna or to uh, this after the judgment understanding of hell on Christianity, what you see is uh, an amount of scriptural data that can fit on one PowerPoint page in font size 10 because I've done it. And what you'll find there is um, a list of material that, that you look at. And I think I think that you have to look at that very seriously and understand that there were annihilationist groups and traditionalist groups in the early church. We can trace this back to the early church, and this is important. This is not some regressive thing where um, uh, modern Christians are just trying to back off because of an emotional appeal or something like this. And that's important to be said. I mean, it's beyond enough. And then as I got into it, it became all the contradictions in the Bible. Who wrote the Bible? How we know what we know? How we know that can't be true? The interpretation problems of the Bible and a million other things. I remember when I started to tell some people, it was trying to like solve for one thing. And sometimes I would be wrong. You know, I would be legitimately, I would get, some things are context issues. Some things can be excused. And I mentioned that when I did my first video, because some of the new atheists do a really poor job of knowing their Bible. There are things that we make big bombastic, we being atheists, big bombastic claims about that happen in the Bible that show God's terrible character, or show a contradiction, and, and we're wrong about it. Like, it's not a contradiction if you understand what's happening at the time and the culture and the language and the tradition, but there's enough of them that have no excuse. I mean, we, yet alone the scientific issues with the Bible. So now, first of all, I, I play this clip because one, obviously, I don't agree with him that there are the types of contradictions and on the scale that I think he's describing. Um, and this brings us, first of all, to mention the fact that it's important not to have the 100 percent literalist camp or the progressive Christian camp. Not, not that he's necessarily saying that. It's just what I'm pulling out from these clips and trying to understand what you're saying. Uh, it's important to understand that the way the correct way to read the Bible is isn't the 100% literal way or, or whatever, because there are different genres in the Bible. And I know that MindShift knows this, but it, it just has to be said in a video like this. There are different genres in Scripture. Genesis, the genre of Genesis 1 is one that is hotly debated, for example. Uh, there's apocalyptic literature in the Gospels and in the book of Revelation. There's uh, narrative stuff where we're, where we're telling a story. There is poetry in the Bible. There, uh, th There's all kinds of stuff. There are letters. There, there's like teaching stuff. There's theological, you know, deep material. There's all kinds of different genre in the Bible. And so you can't uh, you can't point to uh, the Bible and say, what genre of literature is that? Because it's a collection of books. It would be like pointing to any random bookshelf in your or bookcase in your house where you had poetry and then you had adventure and then you had allegory and then you had a number of nonfiction books and then you had some reference books. So what genre is that? Well, that's the wrong way to look at it. It's you can't look at that bookshelf with a hundred percent 
uh, uniform genre because there are multiple genres and you have to do that with scripture. And if that somehow makes you watered down, um, I, I, that's just, then we're not doing uh, a study of ancient literature now. We're, we're, I mean, we're just going with, uh, and I don't, I'm not saying that you're doing this mind shift, but I think someone at that point would be going with me, my Bible and the old oak tree or what I was raised with. And since that was presented to me as Christianity, that is Christianity and everything else is just a twisting of scripture and therefore watered down or liberal. I don't know. I'm trying to grapple with this and I'm, I'm, I'm just looking at this and I'm saying there are multiple genres and recognizing that resolves, I think, a lot of these problems. For example, in the Gospels alone, uh, where a lot of these contradictions are claimed to be, uh, you have to ask yourself, okay, is the harmonization, is there a a legitimate understanding of this where these two passages can be harmonized? Is it a chronology issue where we can perhaps understand that ancient biographers would perhaps uh, be creative sometimes chronologically? Uh, Do we need to I mean, have you taken a look at, I don't think you have to have read anything, but uh, everything. But uh, what about Mike Lycona's uh, book, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? That's an incredible place to start. Um, I, I just think that if you ignore genre, I'm not saying that mind shift is, but if you ignore genre and you go with this 100% literal thing, well, of course, you're going to come away with an understanding of the Bible that the biblical authors never intended in many, many places. Um, on the other hand, if you go with this extremely watered down sort of thing, you end up with something that the biblical authors never intended in many, many places. And so I think that that is important stuff. But really why I brought this clip up was because I wanted you, I wanted to uh, to say I appreciated this. I appreciated that here's a guy being charitable and saying we atheists, or he was not including himself necessarily, but atheists will sometimes mess up in this regard. And there are some things that can be resolved. And uh, I think that was nice of him to point out. And, and I want to highlight that an area of agreement. But at the same time, I don't go with him on on all these. Other, there's so many contradictions that just nothing can be done about it or it's or whatever. So, uh, OK, so so there's that. And then let's move on to a comment about the scientific uh, nature of the Bible. Is it a science book? The Bible clearly believes certain things about the earth, about the order of creation that we just know not to be true. And then, well, the Bible's not meant to be a history book. It's not meant to be a science book, but but yeah, no, okay, but yeah, like you have an all-perfect, all-knowing God. If that's not his intent, can we just go ahead and like admit that one wouldn't get that wrong? Yeah, so uh, again, some of the things that I think you might be referring to or thinking about are not necessarily things that I agree are problems at all. Now think about this. We give uh, little nursery rhymes and ways of remembering things to our children so that they, or poems or things like that, little catchphrases or, or, or rhymes that we come up with so that our kids can understand certain things that we're trying to teach them in school or elsewhere. And we, we don't expect there to be this incredible specificity within the rhyme. It's to help them understand a certain thing, right? It's like a learning tool. Well, Perhaps Genesis 1 is such a frame, such a literary framework. Perhaps it has to do with temple dedication, as people like John Walton view similar to that. Um, perhaps it's a literary framework where the children of Israel were familiar with a particular creation myth, and so falsehood was be, being supplanted with truth. No, God made the sun, God made the moon, and those kind of things, and it's a framework. This is why genre becomes important, because what we, what we, if it was God's intent to teach theological truth to a particular people, I agree with something that Michael Heiser did say on one occasion. I heard him say this uh, in a lecture. Was He was saying, look, if, if God said, now, look, I'm, I'm really trying to teach you, um, some ancient person, I'm really trying to reveal truth to my people about, um, about these theological issues and, and issues important to their spiritual life. Uh, 
but before I do that, I've got to explain to you quantum mechanics and uh, future understandings of cosmology and all of that. The ancient person would be saying, well, who do you think I am? Like, why? What, what, who do you? I can't even possibly connect to what you're talking about. Uh, so God communicated to someone in a way that, that that would make sense about the issues he was trying to communicate with them. I, I just don't understand. And if one said about that, well, that's, but, but yeah, but you wouldn't get it wrong. Well, when we teach little rhymes to our kids to help know you wouldn't get that wrong. Or when we, or if we heard some famous uh, scientists say that the sun rose today or the rising of the sun or the setting sun, we wouldn't say they're wrong. We're saying that's the way you speak in a certain context. Okay. So I think all of these things are important to understand. So the last thing I want to talk about that really broke me is I sat down and I thought, okay, how does this story work? You have a God, somehow he's always been, which I don't even have an issue with because we only have two options for the universe. It either came from nothing, which is a problem, or it's always been, which is a problem. And that's really the same thing for God. We have a God, he came from nothing, he's always been, and he always will be. And then one day, assuming you can even invoke linear time, which you really can't, he decides he's going to make the creation. So at this point, I mean, he's been around for trillions, 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 trillions of years, infinite time, but now he needs to be worshiped. So he creates a creation. Okay. Yeah, so almost, but the, the understanding that you're going to come across with many Christian thinkers online and, and that sort of thing is the, is the understanding that God, it's not just that God has existed for a really, 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 really long time, like trillions of years or something. It's that God is timeless. And uh, if God exists sans the physical universe, if the universe is, generally speaking, time, space, and matter, or matter and energy or something like that, then whatever caused the universe of space, time, and physical matter to come to be is a spaceless, timeless, non-material thing. Other, otherwise, we have something bringing itself into existence. But that means that our understanding of God is from a timeless state. And a timeless state is not sitting around for a long, 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 long time until you decide to do something. It's timeless. It's time. There is, and this is why you don't have to talk about a beginning for God or an end to God. God is timeless, and beginnings and endings are only things that make sense in temporal bound situations like our physical universe. But if God is timeless, he needs no beginning or no end. And in fact, it would make no sense to even talk about him as having a beginning or an end. On the other hand, our universe is very different because this is a physical universe that has not existed infinitely into the past. And so these are ways that we talk about it and think about it. Devil's in control on earth, devil contempt. We have Adam and Eve and we have some rules. One of the rules is you can't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which means they don't yet have the knowledge of good and evil. They don't have the knowledge of good and evil. How can they be in trouble for doing evil or breaking the rules? And I know some of this might sound pedantic if you don't believe in the truth of Genesis, but I think even if it's a metaphor, you still have to like understand what God's going for here. And we get sin in the world because two sinless creatures before sin was invented, before they knew about right and wrong, chose wrong. Okay. Well, I, I'm all about getting pedantic here, and I agree with you. Whether, however you take the story, it, it needs to make some sense, right? And so I'm looking at this, and uh, let's get a little more pedantic. There is a difference between propositional knowledge and experiential knowledge. If it were the case that I could know everything there is to know about riding a bicycle, I studied it for years. I studied everything about balance. I, I, I did everything I could to understand the physics and the mechanics of uh, riding a bicycle. And um, so on paper, I've got all that knowledge that's propositional to me, but I haven't yet had the experience of riding on the bicycle. When I ride on the bicycle, some new information comes. That is the experience of riding the bicycle. That's the what it's like-ness that comes with our conscious experience. There's another example that's given um, of 
uh, uh, this uh, woman who was raised in a room with no color. And so she's never seen. And it's not that she co- she's colorblind. She's just raised without ever experiencing color. And don't ask any silly questions like, why can't she look at her fingers or something like that? Uh, that's not the point. She's never seen color. And but she has become she's got like a Ph.D. in color theory or something. Right. She knows everything there is to know about the color spectrum, the wavelengths, all of that sort of thing, how color affects people, how it's been used in literature and poetry, all that stuff. But she's never seen, say, the color red. Now, when she goes out into the hallway for the first time and she sees a red dot on the wall, does she learn something? She, we've already said she's learned everything propositionally one can know. But yes, she learned something. She learns what it's like to see red, to experience red in that way. What I want to say is that for Adam and Eve, these were not children, even though it's often uh, framed up that way because they uh, were created beings. But these were adults in the story. And and as adults, they could have conversations. They could understand concepts. And they did understand. They were told that they would die. So they had to have some awareness of what's going on. And so they could have propositional understandings about sin and death and uh, good and evil and all of those kinds of things. The difference is they didn't have experiential knowledge of those things. And that is the important difference that I think resolves this issue because they could have propositional knowledge and be held responsible because they were uh, what they were told was not to eat of the fruit of the tree. They had the knowledge. They just didn't have the experiential uh, knowledge of it. They hadn't gone through it. They hadn't had the what it's likeness of it. Let's buy all of this so far. Now I'm personally at the cost of my eternal soul responsible for that, which is original sin. There's a ton of debate and apologetics around original sin. But when I had a family, this is when it kicked in. I remember thinking, okay, if Jameson does the worst thing ever, which would be a lot worse than eating fruit from a tree. What if I then decided to take Avon, my daughter, and lock her in the basement and torture her forever and make sure she lives through it forever and never has a second of reprieve and can never make up for it. Is that justice? No, it's not. Sorry, it's not. We don't understand. It's generational sin. It gets passed down. We're all human. We have the same tendencies. We would have made the same decisions they did. Then why did God make us like that? He made us, right? Well, yes, but don't you understand that he loves us? He is providing a way out and it's a free gift. And he killed his son. He killed his son for three days. He killed himself for three days. I have a huge issue with that as well, and I'm going to make a video on the ridiculousness of a sacrifice that isn't lasting to pay for an entire group of people that never did anything in the first place. Okay, aside from that um, misunderstanding about the Trinity, there are persons in the Godhead, three persons, one being. But putting that aside for just a moment, um, this is an understanding of original sin that I uh, that, that I don't accept. And I, I grant you, I want to be fair, there are Um, a lot of Christians who accept this understanding uh, that you are born both um, both with a sin nature and a guilt nature. This is an understanding of original sin that uh, is you are born with a sin nature and a guilt nature, meaning that you have a nature and an environment that is inclined towards sin, a sin nature. And I can accept that. But then you also have a guilt nature. You're personally culpable for Adam's sin. And I don't think that that works at all. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 19 and following, we find that sons are not held culpable for their father's sins. So I affirm what the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 says, that you're born with a nature and an environment that is inclined towards sin. I'm in a world that is where there are sinful influences all around me. I find sinful impulses in myself. Self, but yet I'm held I'm held culpable for my own sins. 
everyone ends up doing their own sinning anyway, except for Jesus. But it's an important difference and distinction to make because I would join you, MindShift, in rejecting that particular understanding of original sin. What I would say is when we approach this issue of faith, it's not as simplistic as perhaps we were taught in Sunday school sometimes. And as we grow, it's true that we're going to run into um, things that we don't have answers for, and we have to go and try to find those answers. Sometimes we're not convinced by those answers. And for some people, that's led them out of the faith. For me, what that's led me on is a deep study of what I believe I have good reason to believe is true and to find uh, on some of these secondary issues better explanations for what might be going on because of the good evidential grounding I think I have for Christianity in general. And so for me, it becomes an area just like any other, whether it's physics or some issue of philosophy or whatever it is, it, there, there are going to be things we don't understand. And we press forward in that. And it's fun. I love it. I enjoy it. Um, I might be somewhat let down if when I became a Christian, I suddenly was given the answers to everything that I could have ever wondered, because I think there's something exciting about the learning process. Mind shift. I don't know if you're going to see this. I, I hope that if you do, you feel that I was charitable. And I think this is a smart guy. I think it's a nice guy. Um, but my goal would be that whoever you are out there, that you would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way you do that is trusting in him, trusting in him. It doesn't seem too far fetched to me. If you if you believe that there is a God and he has uh, some interest in us having developed uh, a desire for relationship and some moral impulses, then it makes sense that that God might want to have relationship with us. And when you look at the major world religions today, what you find pretty quickly is right in the center of the Abrahamic religions is a man who claims, I think, to present the thinking of God um, as God incarnate uh, to the world. And I'm glad I know him. I hope you know him. Trust in the Lord Jesus today. Repent of your sins. You're a sinner, not because you're some horrible person from a human perspective, but because all of us are sinners and we need Jesus. Not because we were born guilty of someone else's sin, but because we all do our own sinning. And today, I hope that you will make that decision. If you do, reach out to me. And to the rest of you, I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.